page 100 or 855 um, of the Black Bibles. We're looking at Luke chapter 1, um, verses 26 to 38. Um, so while you're turning there, I will pray for us as we start. Father, I pray as we um, look at your word now tonight, I will be able to speak clearly and plainly the truth of God. Father, you show us the Lord Jesus Christ um, in all his glory, your son, Father. Um, and we pray that we'd be um, worshiping him in response. So, beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of, David, of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So at this time of year, um, few um, stories are more enjoyable than Charles Dickens' classic A Christmas Carol, um, although most of us will be following the Muppets version this year. Um, but Charles Dickens also wrote a second classic novel called The Tale of Two Cities, um, comparing Paris and London. Um, many, many years before that, Luke here lays down his own Tale of Two Cities, um, comparing Jerusalem and Nazareth. Last week, um, in the evening service, we were in Jerusalem with Zechariah the priest serving at the temple. And this week we were in Nazareth with a young unmarried woman called Mary. Um, and these two scenes in Jerusalem and Nazareth are intentionally brought together. And we can see that through several similarities. Um, first, of course, um, an angel named Gabriel comes to both Zechariah and Mary and announces they will have a child in very um, unlikely circumstances in um, Zachariah's wife's barrenness in old age and Mary on the other end of this spectrum as an unmarried young virgin. But secondly, both are troubled and afraid when the angel arrives, Zechariah in verse 12 and Mary in verse 29. And the angel's first words to each are the same in verse 13 and 30. Do not be afraid. Finally, the angel tells each parent their child will be great in verses 15 and 32. So these sections clearly go together um, and complement each other. And as you read them, there's a tale of two cities, but it's telling a single story. Um, but 
when we read it, it's, it's the, the differences that are even more striking. Um, in Charles Dickens' famous novel, Tale of Two Cities, Paris and London were centers um, in Europe and two of the most important cities in the world at the time. Um, but Luke's choices of cities are a bit more unusual. Um, Jerusalem fits the mold. Um, it is Israel's religious center um, where Jews from all over the known world at the time would have flocked to go to the festivals and to the temple and to see the priests. Um, but Nazareth was a bit of a, a nowhere town. It had no religious significance at all. Um, popular opinion of the time was summed up by an Israelite in John's Gospel um, who asked the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, it would be strange to open up Dickens' book to discover the two cities were London and um, a pretty insignificant British city, somewhere like Lisburn, if you've ever even heard of there. Um, the story would be bizarre, and you'd be thinking, how is this a story? The two cities aren't even comparable. Um, but the contrasts are deepened even more when you look at the characters who are visited in Jerusalem. Zachariah, a priest, an impressive job, an essential part of God's religious system, and therefore well-regarded in society of the time. But in Nazareth, the angel visits Mary, and the differences couldn't be starker. From one in a top position in society to one of those in the lowest. Women were not considered important in society of the time, especially unmarried women, such as Mary. So Mary is a pretty insignificant character in society at the bottom of the pile. And in this tale of two cities, we might expect Zachariah in Jerusalem to be the more important. Instead, it is Mary in Nazareth. Her message from Gabriel is much bigger. John is going to be important, yes, but what we'll see is that Jesus is going to be the promised king who has at last arrived. We will look at who this baby Jesus is under two headings. First, A, an awaited promise. Jesus is God's king. And two, B, a beautiful person. Jesus is the incarnate God. And then how then should we respond? And we will think thirdly, under C, our case study. Mary's faithful response. So, looking at our first point, an awaited promise. Jesus is God's king. Luke tries really hard in this story to emphasize that Jesus is God's promise-fulfilling king. The big Old Testament promise we had read to us from 2 Samuel 7, Luke explicitly links our passage back to that passage and emphasizes three key elements of the promise made there. First, God promised a king from David's line, David's family tree. And we are told how Jesus is from David's family tree in verse 27. It says Jesus would be born into the house of David. And Gabriel explicitly says it in verse 32. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Second, God would be another promise from 2 Samuel is that God would be father to that king. And that king would be his son. And in our passage in verse 32, we see that Jesus will be called son of the most high. And thirdly and finally, this king's reign would be forever. And in our passage again, we see verse 33, his kingdom will have no end. Jesus is God's promised king who will rule forever. We see undoubtedly that the promise is coming to fulfillment here. Jesus is God's 
2 Samuel 7 king. And Jesus is God's conquering king. Some of you will know that God's Old Testament conqueror was Joshua. He led God's people, Israel, into the promised land and drove out God's enemies. Joshua is a Hebrew name, and Jesus is the Greek equivalent. It's like Peter is Pedro in Spanish. The account was written by Luke in Greek, so he, of course, uses the Greek name instead of the Hebrew Joshua. And we could read verse 31 as though it said, you will call his name Joshua. But why Joshua? Why name the new king after this Old Testament conqueror? A king in the Bible is a conqueror. Even David, his father, was a conqueror, as we read in 2 Samuel 7, verse 9, God will God cut off all his enemies before him. A king takes down God's enemies. And the King Jesus here takes down God's most ancient enemy. He has taken the king of this world and crushed him under his feet. He has made him his footstool. Satan hates the Lord and he plots against him. And he tries to bring God's people down with him. But war was declared on him by God's conquering king. In Gabriel's message, God said, Satan will no longer be your king, but I am giving you a new king. And in Mary's word, in verses 51 and 52, God will scatter the proud. He will bring down the mighty from their thrones. Jesus is the one who will overcome Satan. Earlier this year, anti-monarchy protesters were chanting, not my king, during the coronation. But there is also a not my king campaign when it comes to Jesus. Many will spend their life rejecting his eternal reign, but not after their life. Jesus' reign is forever, and he will conquer all his enemies. That includes all who are his enemies on earth. Everyone will bow the knee to Jesus, whether in heaven or under the earth. He is the king who will exalt his faithful citizens. However, for those who reject his rule, he will conquer them in the judgment. But Jesus is also God's creating king. He is God's king who creates his kingdom. In verse 33, Gabriel announces that he has come to establish an eternal kingdom. All over the world, there are Christians who praise Jesus as their king. From the Jews, the promise spread to all people. Here in Scotland, many miles from Israel-Palestine, the kingdom has spread. Someone might be quick to say they don't see how this really can be true. They, can, they might say, how can Jesus be reigning eternally? I don't see his throne or his country or any marks of his kingship that we would normally expect, really. But Jesus is reigning in his church. He has sent down his spirit he lives inside his people who turns their love towards him. He lives in heaven right now. He never had a coronation that looked like Charles III's earlier this year. But Charles will never have a reign that looks like Jesus's. Jesus's reign is spiritual. An opinion tonight here will be divided. Each person will have their own view about King Charles and the royal family. But nobody has ever had opinion, mixed opinions in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus has spent his, sent his spirit who has captured the hearts of each of his people. We might have jerseys and memorabilia to express our support for our sports team, but that's not, but that's not, isn't what our support is. It is our devotion and attachment to a team. In the same way, Christians are devoted to their king. 
people who had their priorities turned upside down, hearts that were devoted to anything else, captured by Jesus' kingdom spirit. And this is how we see God's promised king fulfilled today. And if we look at our second point today, um, a beautiful person, Jesus is the incarnate God. The thing that jumps out as we read this passage is that Mary was a virgin. Luke is clearly at pains to emphasize this point. He brings it up three times at the expense of red papyrus ink. He says it twice in verse 27 and once again in verse 34. No one could come away from this passage doubting that Mary really was a virgin. So we can see that Mary's virgin pregnancy is important, but is it possible? It is absolutely out of the question to call these people pre-scientific or clueless about biology. They knew that virgins don't get pregnant. How else would Mary ask her question in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? In recent times, it has been popular to deny this truth of Mary's virgin conception of Jesus. It has been brought under the magnifying glass by scholars accusing Luke of ulterior motives. Yet Luke states his motive up front. As Samuel wonderfully took us through last Sunday in verses 2 and 4 of this chapter, Luke was an investigative journalist gathering eyewitness accounts to present a reliable account of the events that had certainly happened. But why do they fix it? I can't figure out why they fix it on Mary's virgin conception. They're taking God down from heaven and putting him in the examination chair. But really, they're like hikers obsessing over molehills while they're in the Andes. The virgin conception is a sign of, much, of something much greater, something much more impossible. Did you read what Gabriel said in verse 37, though? Nothing will be impossible with God. So you see, in this passage, we have another promise-fulfilling moment. A virgin conception was promised long ago in Isaiah 7, verse 14, which reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The virgin conception is a sign that God himself is coming to live among his people. Back in the Garden of Eden, God walked with his people and they dwelt in perfect relationship and it would be again now that God is coming to walk with his people again. For a millennia, God's people were shut out from him by their sin. But he has come to be with them again. God himself was coming to bless his people again by his long-missed presence. The baby is himself. The baby Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus is God himself. In verse 35, he will be called holy because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was sent by his true Father in heaven. It, it is evidence that he is God. But at the same time, the virgin conception shows that he is fully a man. Although he was conceived supernaturally, he still, his life still looks and developed like any of ours. As a man, he began when conceived in the womb and developed as an embryo and was born. And note here quickly that he began at his conception, not at his birth or any other point after 24 weeks. Jesus had no human father, 
but he came about and developed normally like any of us tonight. And this is the real mystery of the incarnation. God took on the nature of a man. This is the greatest of all God's miracles, much greater than any virgin conception. Jesus has united in himself God and human. It is a mystery, but Jesus is himself a beautiful person. It is a mystery we should praise God for. First, Jesus is the God who is, is the God and human who is humble. He had angels singing his praises. He dwelt in glory and in nearness to his Father. He was called the Most High. But he came down and was born like any human. In fact, he came lower than most of us. Born to a poor, unmarried virgin girl in ancient Jewish society would have been low. He would be born out in the manger, out of the inn. He would be rejected by the respected people in the society of his day. In fact, his mission would be to preach to the poor, to the lowly, and to the outcasts. Eventually, he would die an agonizing death by crucifixion in the place of those who have shunned him. This is Jesus who is humble. We should praise our Lord who the God most high dwelt in glory came to be lower and a servant of us all. And he has given so much of us, so much for us, and we should praise him. Second, Jesus is the God who is hum- God and human who is powerful. What other king could defeat Satan but God himself? Satan has held humans in bondage under his power since the Garden of Eden for all the time that humans have been on earth. No human has been able to beat him. But in Jesus, there is a power more than any ordinary human. He was able to defeat Satan. He is more powerful than any other, and he has used that power for our good. So if you look at our third and final point here, it's, we're, looking at, we're thinking about our case study. We're thinking about Mary's faithful response. This passage presents Jesus as God's promised king. And then as we dig into the detail that we see that God, this king is himself God come down to dwell with his people. Jesus is God incarnate. And Mary, when this promise is delivered to her, she does not doubt. But her ultimate response is faith in God's message. We read in verse 38, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary's response. And we learn two things about Mary's faith, or we learn two lessons from Mary's faith. First, it is a faith in God's word. In verse 38, what she says is, Let it be to me according to your word. Later, Elizabeth's praise for Mary in the next passage in verse 45 is that she believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Last week, as Samuel wonderfully highlighted in verse 20, Zechariah is at fault because he did not believe Gabriel's words. It might be a surprising thing for some, but our response should be very simple. It is faith in God's word. We don't do anything, but if we hear God's word as it's spoken to us, as we read it in the scriptures and trust in God's word, Jesus rules over us as his king, as our king. It is all God's work to save us. 
the gospel could be summarized in a way in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. We contribute nothing, just faith. God does all the work. He alone was the one who brought, out, brought about a pregnancy in last week's passage and with Mary in this passage. Our faith isn't faith to produce unlikely babies, but faith for Jesus to create us as his kingdom people with us as members. S second thing we learn is that it's a faith for everybody. We should take it to heart that Mary is an unusual recipient of this promise. She is contrasted with Zachariah intentionally. Zachariah seems to be the man for the job, a pious Jew serving at the temple. However, there is a big surprise in these verses. Zachariah is not the one who is given the message of God's king, it is Mary. The lowly, young, poor, unmarried girl from Nazareth. This is why Gabriel says to her in verse 30, you have found favor with God. It is not that she is greater than any other person. In fact, it is the opposite. She is distinctly unimpressive, distinctly surprising. Yet she is the one who is to bring God's king into the world. The responses to, of each person to the angel are also surprising. Zechariah does not believe the angel's words. Mary responds with faith. The one who has been devoted to God, to the Lord all his adult life does not respond in faith. And this teaches us a great lesson that the faith, this faith is for all people. I'm not sure what you think of yourself particularly. I'm not sure what people in your workplace or in your tutorial group think of you. I think very few of us could say that we are the most charismatic or the funniest people. Very few could say that we are the smartest. In Christian terms, very few could say we're the most gifted or the most knowledgeable. At work or in uni, you might not quite fit in because of your faith or you're slightly excluded. But Jesus is a humble king. He does not shrink from the lowly and the unimpressive. Jesus does not judge as people judge. Jesus has no shame in the lowly. Mary is an unlikely first member of Jesus' kingdom. She was unimpressive, but Jesus is gracious. Your faith, in a way, should be like a knife. What do we do with the knife when, we, when it is time to use it? We sharpen our knife. When you see your lowliness, take your faith to be sharpened. It is a simple faith, just looking at God who saves those who don't have much to offer. Sharpen your faith and believe in God's word of grace to the lowly. Furthermore, and more importantly, we are all spiritual Nazarenes. Spiritually, we are all from Nazareth. We are like Mary in that way. When we look at our lives of sin, none of us are impressive. But Jesus is a great king. If you're here with the knowledge of your sins and shortcoming, if you know you're not walking as you should, remember Gabriel's word to Mary. You have found favor with God. God was favorable to her, but why her, a peasant girl from Nazareth? But this is what Jesus is like. All of us today have God's word of salvation presented to us. Jesus says to us tonight, you have found favor with God. 
If you're a believer, sharpen, renew your faith in God. Despite your sin, sharpen your faith. Do not harden your heart or grovel in your sin or turn away or think that you must do things to appear impressive to God that he would have favor on you. But trust in his word, his promise to spiritual Nazarenes. If you do not trust tonight in God to save your soul, but you know you're a spiritual Nazarene, that you've got sin in your life, do not be like, God, like Zachariah, who rejected God's word in God's house, but be like Mary, who responded in faith to God's promise of grace. Let me pray as we close. Father, there are many wonderful truths in this passage. My Father, I pray they would help us focus this Christmas time on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, our, a beautiful person, the King who is mighty, a conqueror, but a humble creator, creating a kingdom of nobodies, lowly people, sinners, spiritual Nazarenes, Father. But even more gloriously, he is the God who took on manhood and became like us in every way but sin. So I pray, Father, renew our devotion, renew our faith in him, Father, and may we glorify and praise him with our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.